welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for coming to our episode focused on gun violence in America. Um, this is History, Culture, Trauma, and today we're going to talk with Reverend Deanna Hollis, um, who is the Gun Violence Prevention Ministry Coordinator for the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. Um, she's a founding member of the Every Town for Gun Safety Interface Advisory Council and the co-founder of the Retreat House um, Spirituality Center. Uh, in her role with the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, Reverend Hollis empowers and equips individuals and congregations across the Presbyterian Church um, to embody Jesus's call to love God and love their neighbor by informed, active um, gun prevention, um, gun violence prevention. I am very excited to have her here today, and um, this. This episode is is really in response to the rash of mass shootings that we've had recently. And so I want to um, give Reverend Hollis some space to introduce herself and um, let our audience know about her work. Thank you, Ingrid. I appreciate it. So I'll, I'll first I want to just tell folks a little bit about how I came into doing gun violence prevention work. So yes. I, I'm a I'm a native Texan. I grew up to a family of gun owners, and I really didn't pay much attention to to the laws in this country, the gun laws in this country, or in the state of Texas and how they were being dismantled until um, in 2016, Texas passed a law that allowed guns on college campuses, and mm-hmm. I had a a child who was a student at Texas Tech, and I saw how her friends reacted to the law. And what I know now is they reacted exactly as the law intended and that they saw it as an invitation to become armed. And growing up around guns and and having that in my my history, I just knew that the things that they were saying and the way they thought that a gun was going to work was just not just just not right. It just wasn't accurate. And not knowing what to do, I had a friend who had just joined Moms Demand Action. So I went to a meeting and that was kind of what what began my entry into the work of gun violence prevention. And then it wasn't until um, 2018 then when the NRA came to Dallas and I was part of an interfaith prayer vigil. And it was at that prayer vigil that I realized if that I wanted to really be intentional about combining my faith with my gun violence prevention work and um, wanting to be ordained to the, to the ministry, knowing that that would give me a, a bigger microphone. So I joke this today is part of that bigger microphone that mm-hmm that I have because um, following that call that I felt that day to, um, to go into this work more, more intentionally. Yeah, that's, well, first I have to say that my family's from Texas. So I'm, I'm definitely um, from a family of gun owners and, you know, we lived on, on a farm. My grandmother had a farm and 
guns was definitely a part of my upbringing and I spent my summers there. And so that definitely resonates with me. I, I think it's um, interesting when you talk about how um, your faith moved you to this work and kind of in our, in our country, it's, it is really something that is a part of this narrative that there is, you know, faith and guns kind of going together, especially in Texas. Um, And so I'm very interested, you know, have you done any other work prior that, um, that made you feel very connected to this as well? Or, um, you know, what is that journey like prior to getting into the Presbyterian church? Yeah. So really, like I said, there, there wasn't any, um, when I was, well, when I was, when I first began, um, to get involved in gun violence prevention, I I was wondering like, how can I really make the biggest impact and the biggest difference? I thought, where is the, you know, the one, the one root place that I could thing that I could do. And, um, in my prayer, the answer that came to me was children Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, if we could um, just just really help children to 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 heal and to learn a, a different way to resolve problems than through mm-hmm. violence, then we could get at the the source. And so, um, I, I live in Dallas, and DISD had started a program that is um, they had restorative justice that they were introducing into their um, their schools. And so I asked how I could help. And so I volunteered mm-hmm. for a year as a restorative circle facilitator at an elementary school that um, was known to have the highest um, rates of discipline in the district. And it was in an area that had the highest rate of poverty in the state. And so those two things you know, that there, there's a reason for the high rates of discipline mm-hmm. and it's directly related to the high rates of poverty and all the, the different adversities and traumas that these kids were exposed to on just a daily basis. And so, you know, the other, the other funny thing after I signed up, I was like, what, what have I decided? Like, these are, <laughs> these kids are the highest rates of discipline and those are the ones I'm going to be working with, you know, that as the restorative circle facilitator, you're going to be working with all the kids that are fighting. Mm-hmm. And um, as I would, as I would talk with them, there was a couple of things that they, that they taught me that, um, that I still carry into my work today. And one mm-hmm. of them was, you know, how do you begin to, to work towards um restoration you know we would sit down it would normally it would be two two individuals that had conflict and they weren't very motivated to <laughs> to reconcile yeah. you know they didn't see the need and they didn't see the purpose and so then they taught me to um so then i would ask you know what type of world do you want to live in and they would be like what you know and and, and i was like do you enjoy fighting? You know, do you want to fight? And to a kid, 
every single one of them said, absolutely not. Yeah. You know, this is, we don't want to do this, but we don't have another choice was kind of how they felt, you know, and they would tell me, this is the world that we live in. And so I was like, well, what type of world do you want to live in? And so then we'd begin to go into imagination in which we would start to imagine the type of world that we'd want to live in. And I would tell them, I was like, all right, well, you have a choice right here, right now, you know, in this moment, do you want to work towards that world or do you want to stay, you know, here? So maybe you'll go outside those doors and you'll be back in the world. But right here, right now, we can practice something different. And so that was how they would then, you know, having that imagination for what could be possible was what allowed them to be able to enter into a process of something different of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And then, the other thing, you know, knowing that not a one of them wanted to fight and generally they'd walk right out the door and instantly be back in another fight, you know, and um, all the grownups around them would just yell at them, don't fight, you know, yeah. and and they'd say, OK, OK. And and the more I kind of watched what was happening and I could just see how their nervous systems were constantly on alert. Mm -hmm. And if they just bumped into somebody, you know, that, that what I'd experienced in other places that would just be like, Oh, Hey, sorry. You know, but here it was, it was a threat and, you know, they were just doing what their bodies were programmed to do when they would fight, you know, that was just the natural defense mechanisms that would kind of become activated. And because they were so young, they just didn't know how to, how to create space in order to, to, to settle the nervous system and to move into to a different place with, to add choice for something different. And so I had one little boy that I would work with, and that was what we did as we would just practice breathing so that he could learn so that when he felt that activation come, could he create a pause no matter how tiny, but to begin to insert the ability to create a pause and to add breath. And so um, through, through that work, I, I developed a, a practice that I do with people that I called Breathe, Welcome, Transform, in which we begin by first just learning how to breathe, how to breathe in a way that settles our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And then in the welcome, we learn to welcome whatever it is that we feel our sensations in our body so that we can turn towards those with compassion. So we can learn to hold whatever is within us with compassion then we can learn how to do that externally with others. And then um, the transform part is to begin to have a conversation with, with um, whatever sensation that we feel to see if there's anything that, um, that we might need to learn from whatever, you know, if there's, if there's a story or, or, anything else that comes attached to that. So, so that's what those kids taught me. And that very much has carried into the work that I do so that I know that one of the hardest things for people who do gun violence prevention work is it's scary work because the people who are opposed to what we're doing, well, they're usually angry and they're armed. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, you need to learn how to settle your nervous system. You need to learn how to um, be able to respond to that energy that's coming at you with compassion and to be able to have courage to move forward. And those kids taught me how to do all that. Yeah. And I often find like when in this, when it comes to this gun control debate, um, that both sides will say that they don't want to live in a, a world where they constantly have to be armed and, and, and fight and be prepared um, for um, gun violence. And so I think it's interesting that we've gotten ourselves to a place as a country where we're kind of in a deadlock, um, even though the, the, the statistics and the impact of the gun epidemic that we have in this country currently is just staggering. At this point, this year, we've had more mass shootings than we've had days in the year. And 2022 is on track to have, um, you know, more mass shootings than kind of any, any year that we've been tracking this. And so I think at this point, um, we really kind of have to reckon with this issue of gun violence in America being a reflection of our collective trauma that um, that underlying this issue of the anger around this debate is fear and that this fear has been stoked throughout history over time. Um, and it really is about tribalism, us versus them. Um, and um, that there is a very clear um force or very clear narrative that if you want to feel safe, you have to be armed. Um, and, um, and is that true? Are, are, are we more safe if we're armed? It's not true. And in fact, statistics, you know, have data has shown this over and over and over again, that the, um, the chance of being killed by a gun doubles in homes that have guns. So as soon as the gun enters a home, your chance of being harmed by that gun doubles. It's in, mm-hmm. And the reason for why we've been sold this narrative that guns keep us safe is because a gun is a non-consumable product. And when I say that, what I mean by that is it's, it's not something that's going to get used up like toilet paper or something that's going to wear out like a car or a washing machine. And so the people who sell guns, well, they need you to buy a gun, just like, just like any business. And, and if there's no need to buy another gun, you know, once you buy one, you pretty much are good, you know? And Uh, This has always been a problem ever since the Civil War in which we began to switch the way we manufactured guns from being manufactured by individuals. They used to be manufactured by blacksmiths and blacksmiths had other products that they would make. But during the Civil War, and thanks to the invention of Eli Whitney and his interchangeable parts, guns began to to primarily be manufactured in a factory. Mm. And so when the war ended, there was no demand for these guns that these factories could produce. And so many of them went bankrupt. Remington started making um, typewriters and sewing machines. But 
the men who, you know, ran these uh, factories, well, they were, they were businessmen and, and gun were more pro- guns were more profitable. So they went to the U.S. government, who was primarily their customer at the time, mm-hmm. um, and said, if you want guns to fight your wars, we need to have a steady market because any business isn't going to survive highs and lows, right? You've got to have steady, steady stream of business. And so that's when the gun industry, um, the gun market was established and their primary target was men. That was who they first you know, tried to sell their products to. And so that's when you begin to have these creations of stories that, um, Guns will keep you safe, you know, so they so they would market to to be out on the frontier that having a gun to protect you from from all the scary people of color that might be out there to harm you. Right. So so those narratives and stories began in order to sell guns. They also launched there's um, there's there's evidence from um, Pamela Haig. She studied the records of the Winchester firearms and they, they launched a plan called the Boy Plan, in which they specifically went after um, young men between the ages of 10 and 16, because mm-hmm. they wanted to create in the male psyche this idea that gun ownership is synonymous with becoming a man. And mm-hmm. so, you know, not all, not all parents were, were happy about that because they were safe, you know, concerned about safety. So they started creating then that's, that begins the gun ranges and mm. these campaigns to talk about gun safety, because again, it's always about normalizing the gun in society and getting gun sales. So we're not, we're all, the only reason that we don't have gun legislation is because our lawmakers have, catered to the gun industry. They've, they've listened to the gun lobby and they've chosen gun industry profits over public safety. And so with the gun industry being able to, for decades, you know, create these narratives, these marketing campaigns in order to get people to buy guns, that's, um, it's created, they've, they've, they've exploited our nation's, um, history of racism and white supremacy. They've exploited our fear and our trauma, and they've created these extremists. And so we don't really, the the lawmakers are catering to the gun industry and these extremists. The majority of Americans, they want gun laws. They, you know, 80%, 90% consistently show up in surveys, and that includes gun owners and non-gun owners, but our lawmakers do not do the will of the people. Instead, they're, they're catering to the will of the gun industry and the extremists. Yeah, thank you for giving us that that historical context. Um, it really ties into an episode that we had last week with... Um, Caleb Campbell, who really talked about masculinity. And so when you talked about how um, there's been a narrative created around um, targeting young boys to believe that guns are kind of a rite of passage to adult adulthood and to becoming a man, um, it really does uh, show that there is a clear trend here uh, and that historically um, we have... Um, really fostered kind of a toxic masculinity around this issue and 
it is having a negative impact on on our children uh, for sure. And um, especially when we talk about children specifically, we we just had um, last week a very horrible school shooting um, in Texas um, at Robb Elementary School. And that was perpetrated by another young person. It's 18 years old. Um, what are, how do you feel about this? I mean, obviously it's, it's a horrible situation. How do you feel about this within the context of what you know about, um, about this gun control debate? And also as, as a person that's a native Texan. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, it's, it's, it's just tragic. And and, and for everybody who lost their lives and for, um, you know, when you hear the stories about, about what this particular shooter, you know, he was 18 years old. He's a, like you said, he's a, he's basically a, a child himself. And only in this country do we allow, you know, children to have access to guns. And we don't, he wasn't old enough to buy alcohol because we know that that developing brain is not going to be responsible. Right. And so we don't want to put combined alcohol in cars. We don't want to um, sell more than two packs of, of Sudafed because he might go out and make meth, but he could go in to any gun dealer and, and he was only 18 years old. So of course, you know, as the background check, it gets cleared and he can buy as many AR-15s as he wants, as many, you know, I mean, who does that? And the only reason we do that is because again, it's about gun sales, right? And, and, and what we know about mass shootings, particularly since Sandy Hook is after the year following Sandy Hook, it was the greatest increase in gun manufacturing that we had seen in this country in its history of the ATF tracking gun manufacturing. And so again, if I'm in the gun business, I have, you know, the horrible truth of the matter is, is that shooting kindergartners, shooting small kids, it sells guns. You know, I mean, Wayne LaPierre, the, the head of the NR. RA after, after Sandy Hook, that was when he goes on and he says, you know, his famous lines of the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And so therefore everybody thinks, well, I got to go get a gun. So the thing about shootings, you know, the more you can get guns into the hands of more people, the more guns there are, the more gun deaths we have. And the magical way that the gun industry has set this up is then the more gun deaths that we have, the more shootings we have, the more that taps into people's fears. So guess what? The more guns they buy. And so this is a, a vicious cycle that's all about gun industry profits. And so we hope that people choose differently, you know, that when we can see these powers, when we tell the truth, that a gun doesn't keep you safe. In fact, guns harm. That then, just like just like how I used to teach my little first grader, you know, if we can create a, a pause, just enough of a space, then you can have the ability 
to see things clearly. That's how it is. If I can tell you the truth and you can begin to question, mm. why do I think I need this gun, right? Is this, is this about money or is this about truth, right? Is it really going to keep me safe or is it just going to give more money to the gun industry? Then we can begin to make a different choice and find different ways. And, yeah. and we know there are different ways to be safe. Yeah, it seems like this is a uniquely American problem. So, uh, and I know that there have been school shootings in other places in the world and they acted um, when, when they occurred and put it in place policy. But then also beyond policy, they also had the support of the public will that there was a need to address it and therefore um, I'm, I'm able to give up my gun. I'm able to, um, you know, I don't feel as though um, my rights are being encroached upon by trying to protect um, the children in my country. And, uh, and so it's something to reflect on when we think about what is, what makes this a uniquely American issue. Um, also how we are seen to be vulnerable to um, and the exploitation of our, our, our fears um, and anxieties um, because we have really, we're do, you know, very entrenched in tribalism in America and that historical context of us versus them. And definitely this need um, to project strength um, that's tied to um, masculinity or being a man or protecting family. So, I mean, there's a lot there and it is deeply entrenched in our, our history. It is definitely uh, reflecting as a, as a collective trauma in our society. Uh, and so then that leads us to the point where, like, how would we even get to the point where people would be willing to give up their guns in America? Like, is that even possible? Um, and so I think that um, it is, we're at a crossroads where we really have to start contending with the, the psychological impact that uh, guns have had on our society beyond just the, um, you know, the physical impact, right? The, the lives lost and the, the families that have been impacted by those lives lost, but that we have to then, we now to, we need to contend with our trauma as a, as a, our collective trauma as a country to say, why are we uh, unable to act in a way that curbs our, our gun violence? And um, what is a strategy that would even work at this point? Um, and so we will delve into that um, in our second half. We'll talk a little bit more about, you know, what does it look like to address this in a real way? Uh, and then definitely we'll talk more about the the impact of, you know, on on families and children um, of these mass shootings and our overall gun violence. Uh, and so please join us after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests 
will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back. Today's guest is Reverend Hollis, and we have been really um, doing a deep dive into um, you know, America's current gun violence crisis. And um, in the first half, we talked a lot about how Reverend Hollis got to this work and also a little bit of the history um, of guns in this country. And we're going to talk more about, about that as we move forward. But the question that I asked right before we went to break was really, you know, what does it look like for us to really address the gun issues in, in this country? And I know that some places have gone through process where they've done, um, you know, buyback programs and things of that nature. But at this point, we have a lot of guns in America um, to the point where, you know, kids are, you know, breaking into cars and finding guns in cars. So there's just a lot of guns that are even not accounted for. What does it look like to even address this gun crisis? And are would Americans even be willing to to give up their guns? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, one that that we believe that is the the role of the church to help facilitate. And that um, in in the Bible, there's the prophet Isaiah. And just like how those kids that 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 the way I got them to move into into a different space was by was by dreaming about a different world. Well, that's what the prophet Isaiah does. And the prophet Isaiah has this dream of a different world that he calls the peaceful kingdom. And in, mm-hmm. in, in my tradition, we call it the kingdom of heaven, you know, that uh, 
and that that's part of the role of the church is we believe that one of the great ends of the church is to be the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world and so in this in the prophet isaiah's vision he he says that it'll be a place where swords are beaten into plowshares and so in our modern context that looks like guns being turned into garden tools and so we at the Peace Fellowship have partnered with the organization Raw Tools, who's a network of blacksmiths that turn um, dismantled gun parts into garden tools. And, 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 and we're encouraging churches to start a gun to gardens ministry. And what this means is that they're going to become the chop, a chop saw congregation and that they're going to, we ask them to you know, purchase a chop saw and then to be a safe surrender site for for anybody who has an unwanted gun because as i said you can't you can't destroy it you know in the in the sense of let's say you decide i don't want this gun the only option that people have is to return it to the marketplace to sell that gun or you know, or give it away, you know, it's still a perfectly good working gun. And so they, they don't have the assurance then that their gun is not going to be used for harm. And so what we're inviting churches to do is to have the saw. And then as a service for the gun owner, they'll um, chop up the saw according to the guidelines that come from the, uh, the ATF, the alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. You know, they have, they have guidelines for the proper way to decommission a gun. And so churches were the, you know, besides this vision of the prophet Isaiah and in, in, in us living into creating the world we want to see, it's also a way that we can embody our baptismal promises, which mm -hmm. are to turn away from evil, which I define as violence, and to turn towards Christ, which is love, which is community. And so you know, that's, that's what the church is about, is inviting people in and, and having this transformation. And, and baptism is your entry into the church. And so, so as we go out and are the love of Christ for others, and as we help people to see and tell them the truth about not only, you know, um, that guns harm, but to also, you know, help them to, to reflect on the history of our gun, of, of how we've got this problem. And, the, and as you said, here in America, we seem to have more of a problem than in other places and that this is part of our rights that we have and people are worried about encroaching them. Well, I invite people to reflect on those rights that we have and how that law and why that law is in our constitution. And it's directly connected to this history that we have of white supremacy and colonialism. And so, you know, we used to have slavery in this country. It was enshrined in our constitution, but we realized that that really isn't a good thing and that we could do better. And so I say the same about the Second Amendment, that it may be in our constitution, but it's there in order to uphold slavery. It's there to 
commit mass genocide against the native population. It's there so that white men can have power over other people so that they can make a profit. And so we really need to begin to evaluate, you know, maybe this is a right, but just because you can doesn't mean you should, you know, is this really the best option? The gun industry tells us that, that the only option we have for any type of safety is to be able to um, have a gun. Where we in the church say that's not how we build safety. The way we build safety is the way that we've known and that Jesus taught us, and that is to love our neighbor. It's to build community. It's to learn things like de-escalation techniques. It's to learn restorative practices. How do we resolve conflict? And so that's that's our role is to be able to 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 help people to see that and then provide that um, that avenue to be that place where they can dismantle the guns when they when they don't the ones that they don't want and turn them into garden tools and this happens you know oftentimes the most common reason is because people inherit guns you know what are mm-hmm. they going to do with them right like they don't they don't want them there's been um a family who inherited uh, 150 guns from, mm. you know, what what are they going to do with them? So their only option is to sell them, which they, you know, didn't want to be responsible for returning for the risk of the violence that would come from those guns. So they reached out to Raw Tools and, and, and had them dismantled. Um, I've heard stories of people that find guns and, with as many, that just goes to show how how many guns we have that you yeah. just find them, right? Like like they buy houses and they're behind the heating elements in the house. One person said they, they bought a house and they wanted to keep the couch. And so they went to go move the couch and it was guns stuck in underneath the couch that they had. Um, another fellow at this recent... Um, Against a garden event that I attended in Bold, in, in actually was in Denver at Bronco Stadium. He bought a car and it came with a gun in the glove compartment when he <laughs> bought the car. You know, so that's one reason. And then, and then another reason is whenever um, sometimes guns get returned to the family whenever they are um, used in a suicide, and so. It's a place of healing for this family to be able to have this gun dismantled and turned into a garden tool. I've had uh, stories of people that has been domestic abuse. And so one again, there were inherited guns and this family wanted to put an end to the violence that was there. And just this week, I've had a pastor reach out to me and a member of his congregation has an AR-15. He bought it several years ago. And now after the most recent mass shootings, he's really reflecting, why do I have this? You know, what am I going to do with it? Do I want to commit this level of violence? No. And what's more likely to happen is that that gun can get stolen from your home, you know, and, and be used to, to again, go out and and cause harm. The gun's going to do nothing but cause 
harm. It's going to cause harm, whether it's to the person who gets shot, whether it's to the community, but even the gun owner. You know, we know about this thing called a moral injury that anytime violence happens, right, it affects not only the victims, but also the perpetrator. And so when we can help people see that and tell those stories and let them know that there are actually alternatives, you know, there are nonviolent ways, like I said, like, um, restorative circles and de-escalation techniques, when we start to learn the ways of nonviolence, we'll just have all, you know, then, then people are going to, it's my belief, it's my hope, it's my prayer that, that the American people are going to say, we've had enough and we can choose differently. We can start to live into new stories and um, we want to be there for them as a way for them to be able to have an alternative other than the gun market. Yeah, that's definitely my hope and belief as well, that we get to a place where we've we've had enough. And my feelings around this, especially as a Black woman, is the amount of community violence that I have seen um, in, my, in my personal life, just in, in, in general as part of the Black community, but um, also in my professional space where I've worked with uh, juvenile offenders and worked in um, CPS. And I know that um, gun violence is having a real impact on Black communities. So when you talked about how um, this belief that our rights would be encroached upon if we gave up our guns, um, it really it stood out to me because the reaction is so different when we have like Sandy Hook, where we're in a white community and it's mostly impacting um, white children or you know, age matters as well. But when I think about how many Black and Latino children have been um, killed and injured due to gun violence, you know, even the uh, the difference in response is there. And I definitely think that that is something that's connected with um, white supremacy because you know, so many children of all different backgrounds have been negatively impacted by gun violence. And I, I hear much more cries to address it when it's a certain type of child in a certain type of situation, um, as opposed to um, children that are living in, in poverty or in high crime areas or dealing with um, gang violence. Um, the the cries for their um, their deaths or injury is not the same. And it is uh, something that stands out to me every time we have a situation like that happens at, at Rob Elementary, where there's an outpouring or at Sandy Hook, but then we have very clear evidence that gun violence is impacting um, children across this country on an everyday basis and all the ripples that come along with that directly and, and indirectly. Um, that's really crippling um, families and communities um, and um, has the, you know, like I said, the ripples that go through society of a collective trauma. We have a, we have a gun culture um, that bleeds into our media, um, definitely bleeds into our politics. Uh, and allows for um, there to be a difference in how we respond, have empathy for certain groups, certain kids, certain families. Um, that's obviously so you know upheld by 
white supremacy and um, and also kind of our constructs around who's innocent and who's not. Um, so I, I definitely think that, you know, if we can have more, you know, programs that are buyback or even, you know, turning all of our guns into gardening tools or art, um, you know, that it would benefit us as a society. I want to really reflect on, you know, kind of what we talked about at the beginning when you said kind of your your mission to equip and empower the Presbyterian Church. Um, tell me more about that work and what that looks like for you. Um, and also kind of like what, you know, what's the big picture here? What what are we going towards um, when it comes to um, this this gun control debate? Yeah, so I'll just start with answering the big picture first. And that, you know, for us, again, it's it's creating that kingdom of heaven here on earth. And we have that, that is the big picture, right? Mm-hmm. Creating a world in which violence is no more. And how do we get there? You know, now, now that gets to be, um, there's lots of ways we get there. You know, there, there is no one, there is no one answer. It's going to take a multiple, multiple prong approach, mm-hmm. you know, from doing like the work that they, that you do and, and, and helping heal these childhood traumas and the trauma that's out there to passing gun laws, you know, to um, dismantling weapons. I mean, I think it's going to require dismantling white supremacy, you know, um, dismantling the gun industry to where, so we, we give churches, um, we have a, a congregational toolkit that they can get on our website, which is presbypeacefellowship.org, which gives them all kinds of ideas about the things um, that, that their congregation can do. So generally, you know, one of the places that is where they start is just is getting familiar. You know, I, I serve a mostly white congregation. And as you named, there is this disparity about when we get involved. And a lot of that has to do with proximity, you know, that, that we're just not exposed to and, and, and don't really have an idea. We've become numb to, to kind of the, the everyday violence that occurs in this country. And so the way that we can begin to, um, to develop that proximity is to just to begin with prayer to where every week as part of our service, we're lifting up the names and the families, you know, and praying for the folks that have um, been, their lives have been cut short by gun violence so that we can begin to really understand and see the problem that exists. And then we don't want to stop there, you know, Prayers are the basis for our action. It's not our action. It's not all we do. And so then when we begin to have that proximity, it can move us into advocating with lawmakers. It can move us into getting out the vote to make sure that um, that if you aren't going to vote for gun violence prevention, then we're going to put somebody else in that seat. And so that's one way that churches can participate is in in the process of legislation. But then we also encourage, you know, we talk about this culture that's been created, this gun culture that the gun industry wants us to have. And so we can begin to push back on that by, by normalizing the ask 
that's what the Brady campaign causes the ask. And then uh, Moms Demand Action has their Be Smart campaign. But what it is, 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 is we can demand safe storage. So as you said, there are, um, we know that there are at least half a billion guns in this country. So even if we had legislation and we cut off the fountain and there was no more guns, you know, that were to be sold, we still have half a billion, right, that are in our homes and in our lives. And so we can begin that anytime you go into any home, you go into any place of business, you go into your churches that you that you ask, are there guns here? Do you allow guns, you know, or are there guns here and how are they stored? So see what type of policies are in place, you know, demand that there's, in, you know, signage that says there's no guns allowed in this place. Or if you go to somebody's home, if they don't have it securely stored, and that generally means a gun safe, you know, gun locks are not what I would consider necessarily securely stored. You can still, um, I have a story of, of someone that I know that, that had a handgun that they'd received and they had it locked in a case, but just stuck up in the top of the closet. And um, somebody who was suicidal got a hold of that gun, you know, removed it from the home and then, and then used it. So, so it needs to be, if, if, if you feel you have to have a gun, you know, make sure that it's in a gun safe to where no one can get a hold of it. Um, Cause that's that's where we can begin to shift and then like i said and then having these guns to gardens events to where if you realize that you cannot keep your guns securely stored and you want an alternative you know to the marketplace then you can be able to my my dream is that you'll be able to call any church in america and they're going to have a chop saw and that they can help you to dismantle it yeah i, I really love you know, the peaceful kingdom. Um, I think that as we kind of move towards um, having, you know, very clear understanding of how we prevent violence. Um, so so beyond, um, you know, all the things that you, that you listed, but then having a very clear basic education for everyone that um, we prevent violence through creating, you know, this peaceful kingdom, having children grow up in spaces that are safe. And, um, and that will, again, really kind of break a cycle uh, because um, as we have clearly um, shown that there, there's history there, there's intergenerational transmission of this trauma that we have as a, as a collective that um, has brought us to today where we are very deeply entrenched in our, our fears um, that we believe that we have to have guns to be safe. Um, again, that tribalism um, and that, you know, the peaceful kingdom really is the, the solution. Um, and so, you know, how we get there, I'm very interested to see how we get there. I try not to be jaded, um, but you're right around how, you know, the numbness that we have become very numb. Um, we've normalized gun violence. Uh, and, um, and now it's gotten to the point where only when we are um, faced with extremes, like um, 
like tops um friendly market in in um buffalo and um and you know sandy hook and rob elementary do we sit back and say well maybe we're not doing something right here like like maybe this is you know this is all not working but on a normal basis where we are kind of embedded in this you know um violent system um, where we have normalized this as part of our culture. And um, not only that, but we are vulnerable to being exploited because of that. And so um, I, I want to uh, give some space before we end um, to address a caller. Uh, and so the question is, in addition to what uh, churches are doing, do you think there's going to be any federal action? I hope so. I mean, I'm always hopeful whenever um, when these mass shootings occur, you know, I, um, it, it, as you said, we're numb, but I always get a little hopeful, right? That it's like, oh, look, we're not totally numb yet. We're mm-hmm. not, we're not totally there. We still find this to be atrocity, you know, to be horrible. And yeah. so there's there's so many people right now that are organizing, that are demanding change. We have, you know, the hope that we've never had in a in a while, and that, you know, it's a 50-50 Senate, along with um a uh, president who who has said that they want gun reform. So mm-hmm. so there's hope. So but but in order to make that happen, we all have to show up. You know, now's the time because um, people, you know, let's take that energy. Let's take that that sadness, that anger and let's turn into action. And so um, next June 11th is is um, when the um, kids, the students from Parkland, you know, the shooting in Parkland, mm-hmm. Florida, they, they're doing a call to, to march again. So we need to do that. You know, uh, this yeah. is the first time um, Senator Cornyn, there are two days now there's been that I know of protests at his office here in Dallas, and I've never witnessed that before. So mm-hmm. I, so to me, this is when I get, when I get hope, you know, when I see that the people are still showing up, that, that even though these, these things are horrible, we're still not so numb that, you know, that, that, that we've given up all hope together. So I hope to see, I hope to see that there's something. Um, and then June 11th is also a date when we're having a national guns to gardens. So mm-hmm. check out guns to gardens.org and you can find a place near you that you can get your, your gun dis, dismantled. Yes. Thank you so much, Reverend Hollis. This has been a, a great conversation about this issue. And I too have hope uh, around um, some type of um, way that we can address this that is, you know, it's common sense. Um, We have too many guns, so we should definitely address this in a real way. Thank you for joining us. And um, thank you for joining us here on History, Culture and Trauma. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.